Good morning. Thank you, Doan and Buddy. How's everybody today? Good. We made it. You're all here. Congratulations. Love Matthew Doan. He's uh, coaching my son's baseball team. And uh, we'll make it. Eventually we'll get a win in there someday. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They're doing great. They're doing great. He's an awesome, awesome guy. Hey, uh, we are thankful that you are here. We are in, uh, we're kind of getting towards the end of a series here called Chronicles of the Kings. We're going through the kings of Israel. Israel divides at some point, and now we have uh, the kings of Israel and Judah. And today we're going to focus on one of the kings of Judah and his name. Finally, today we get to go to a great king, a wonderful king, and his name is Hezekiah. And what I want us to know, if there is a goal for this morning, my hope and my prayer is that you would understand that there is a king uh, a couple thousand years ago that brought revival to the people of Israel and that we have a greater king. That this king was pointing to a greater king. We call him Jesus and that he wants to bring about revival in our hearts. And if you just look at, at what some of this, this history, you have the, the kingdom was united and we had Saul and David and Solomon and then we split and we have the kings of the north, 19 kings, none of them were good. And then we have 20 kings to the south and about eight of them get honorable mentions at least. Some of them like started good, went bad, started bad, went good. Um, and so we're over here today at Hezekiah. And uh, he becomes king at age 25, and he's kind of this amazing guy. He's an actual character, a person that was in history. I want to show you, hopefully by the end of today, you'll get a sense of, okay, this guy really existed. Even outside of the Bible, we have lots of really great evidence. But one thing that just showed up uh, just a couple of years ago in excavations in Jerusalem, uh, they found there's an area there called the Ophel, and in the Ophel uh, excavations, they found this little piece. It's a clay piece. It's called a bula. And this was actually, if you could read the Hebrew, it, it says something pretty significant. This actually belonged to King Hezekiah. Um, there is a writing on there in, in the ancient Hebrew, and it says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, and it says, Melech Yehuda, the, the king of Judah. And so this guy actually existed. And, and so he is uh, the king of the southern kingdom at this point in history. We're roughly in the 8th century BC. And so he is down here. The capital is right there in Jerusalem. And a, a few years into his reign, about six years into his reign, Assyria comes up from the north. And Syrian Empire is way up here. And the Syrian Empire comes down. And actually the king up in the north, his name's Hosea. Hosea is destroyed. We had 10 tribes up in the north, destroyed, carried off. And you can see in your timeline, in your outline, in the bulletin, uh, that really that's the point, and it's during the reign of Hezekiah that the northern kingdom ceases to exist. And so now we are looking at the southern kingdom. Now I, I want you to just have this idea of revival. When you say revival, when you hear revival, I'm not exactly sure where your mind goes, but uh, this is where my head goes. I grew up uh, in the Messianic Judaism movement, all right? I am a Jewish guy that happens to love Jesus. Now, I didn't stop being Jewish when that happened. Um, I actually believe that to be a follower of Jesus is one of the most Jewish things that you could do. And so part of my burden, part of my life calling is to reach out to Jewish people and let them know that, that Jesus was a Jew. The books that we read here, the Bible was written by Jewish people. It talks about a Jewish Messiah. And so 
part of our life is that we are Jews that believe in Jesus. Now, growing up in the Messianic movement, I didn't go to church on Sunday mornings. We went on Saturday. And part of this experience, there's a lot of great and wonderful and redeeming parts of the Messianic movement. And then there's parts of it that were a little bit more hyper, maybe a little bit more uh, energized. And so the word revival kind of like ran around me um, quite a bit. And so it would be, it it was not an uncommon thing for me um, to have people. um, And I wouldn't even say that this is, this is way out there, but we'll start here and we'll go from there. Uh, I'd be, I'd be leading worship at a conference and I would have people as I'm sound checking, um, putting oil on my head and on my microphone and people walking through all of the aisles and they're praying and they're praying at the four corners of the property. Um, But there was one time in particular where I was sitting down in a major big conference back east and uh, there's worship taking place on stage and as I'm sitting there and I'm by myself, there is a woman who comes up and she sits next to me and she's wearing a full-on bride's dress. There's no mistake. It's not a white dress. It's a full-on bride's dress with the train. Okay? And she is sitting next to me. And the songs come up. And it's kind of big fun. Like think Havan Nagila, right? You've heard that at the baseball games. And she gets up and she starts dancing. And it's kind of this really great joyous moment. And uh, on the emotional spectrum, like she's like, she has the, she she can go. And I'm kind of a little more right here. And so she's dancing right there in the aisles. And I look at her and I'm just like... Wow, that's unbelievable. And she looks at me and she says, I am the bride of Yeshua, uh, bride of Jesus. And I looked at her and I said, yes, you are. That's awesome. That's an amazing thing. Uh, I'm very comfortable with that. And so like weird doesn't bother me. And um, the Lord has like, given me that experience growing up. But when I think about revival, I think about the lady in the wedding dress. And I think revival means that I got to dance around kind of like a crazy person. And so for me, I, I, I didn't really ever want... Revival. Revival was something that was like part of my crazy, wonderful upbringing. But I, I want to redeem the word for us today. And I want you as an individual, and I want us as a church community to long for and to want revival in our lives. And so if we could look at the life of Hezekiah, this king, and see how he brought about revival in the people and the nation of Judah... And then maybe there's some parts of this that we can redeem for ourselves that God would uh, be working in us. And so um, let, let's start here. We're, we're going to go into a couple of different areas of the Bible. But if you go to 2 Kings 18, um, the story of Hezekiah is, is covered in 2 Kings 18 to about 22. It's also in 2 Chronicles. And then Isaiah 36 to 39 also covers it. But let's just stick with uh, 2 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to look and and read a little bit about this guy um, who does some amazing things. And what I want us first to understand and to know is that revival restores life as God intended. The people of God have wandered and they are no longer doing the things that God has asked them. And Hezekiah comes in as a 25-year-old king. Not the youngest king, we'll get to him next week. But comes in as a 25-year-old and he says... This is not as God has intended. We need to make some changes. And so 2 Kings 18, verse 1, it says this. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that's the guy up in the north, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. 
And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars. And he cut down the Asherah. These are all idol worship pieces. And he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called the Nehushtan. By the way, lots of great names. If you happen to be pregnant and trying to find a really good name for your child, um, today is chock full of them. I love some of the names here. But um, you remember there's the point where Moses lifts up this bronze serpent and all who looked upon that would be healed. It was a picture of all who would look upon Jesus, they would be healed. And so um, the people looked to that symbol and Nehushtan literally means just a piece of brass. And so he said, okay, we're not going to worship the piece of brass anymore. We're going to actually worship God. And so he destroys that. And it says then in verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all of the kings of Judah, nor among all those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. This, this picture, this word shows up uh, even in Genesis that, that we are supposed to cling like, like bone to, to muscle. It, it's this clinging, this sticking to. He clung to the Lord and he did not depart from following him, but he, com- he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And so revival brings about this, this life that God has intended. And he says, look, we are going to follow the ways of the Lord. Now, how he did this was he removed all of the idols, all of the altars throughout Judah. And he's going through and he's cleaning up house. If you really want to see the extent of what he does, go into this passage, but in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 29, 30, 31. And you can see what he does there and it extensively lists it out. But not only does he remove the idols and everything that's there, um, but he also brings back proper worship. Uh, in Jerusalem. And as he's doing this, uh, he's, he's making some pretty amazing changes. The temple of God, the house of the Lord at this point in history, the doors are closed, closed for business, lights are out, and, and Hezekiah says, all right, we need to change some things. He opens up the doors and he actually starts to bring life again to the people. He gets the Levites who like got like jobs, you know, selling stuff. They were all not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And he says, Levites, I'm calling you to something greater. We're going to restore everything that is here. And in Second Chronicles, you can see chapter 29, it says, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, and he gathered them into the square on the east. And as he does this, he's bringing about, hey, this is how God has called us to worship. Not only that, but he reinstitutes Passover. And he reaches out his hand in peace and he says, hey, I know that we're here in the south. And I know those of you up in the north, uh, we're, we're kind of separated and the kingdom's no longer united. You actually guys are about to go down. But he says, let's do Passover together. And so he sends out words and out, sends out tribute and says, hey, everybody come down. We're going to do Passover like we used to back in the day And we're going to do this as a united kingdom. Some people came and some people didn't. But there was a revival that broke out. Not women dancing in wedding dresses, but they were praising God. And they were saying, God, this is what we were created for. So not only is he clearing out all the idols, not only is he restoring proper worship, but then he's also rebelling against the enemies of Judah. Now... Israel's always had enemies, even up until today. And if you look historically, the enemies today were the enemies then. 
And so they're coming after him. And, and one of the things that is unique for Hezekiah is he, he resists. It says, this is back in 2 Kings, uh, he rebelled against the king of Assyria. He did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to fortified city. And so he's going throughout there. But what I want you to hear just in this section is that if, if you are going to be bringing up something that was dead, if you are going to be restoring worship as God has intended, then there has to be some cleaning up. And so God has given me an illustration in my life because um, I'm slow and I need help with certain things. Um, this picture that we have up here on the screen uh, is, is a dredging machine. Uh, after there's a storm, you have all of the runoff that's coming through the rivers, and that kind of just dumps into a lake. And over time, what happens is all of this toxic material that has come from these storms, it kind of is just the soot, and it's the muck, and it's the runoff, and it ends up settling at the bottom of a lake. Over time, this actually destroys the eco-life of what's going on in the lake. And... The dredging machines, these big boats, they come through and they actually go down and they pull up all of this soot, all of this yuck and this muck and they actually inject it with water and they bring it up and it comes up to the top and then they take it off and you can actually see, uh, here's another picture of what that looks like, um, but they're kind of just pulling it out and they have these big heaps of all of this toxicity and then they take it out and and in the process of doing this, uh, they're cleaning the lake. They're bringing new life to it. And, and for me, going through certain seasons of my life, I saw that God was, for me, dredging up some stuff in me that needed to be cleaned up. God continues to do that for me in my life. And so one of the things that is unique about Hezekiah's story is it says that he says... I want you to take, he's talking to the Levites, take up all of the uncleanliness, all of the filth, take that up and remove it. Carry it out from the temple so that it won't be here anymore. We're not going to have this in our lives. We're not going to keep this in the house of God anymore. But we're going to take up this. We're going to dredge it out. We're going to carry it out. And what's unique when you actually do this in a lake, not only do you take it out, but that process of pulling up the dredge out of our lives, the uncleanliness, the filth, when we do that, we're actually deepening the lake. When we do that, we're actually deepening our souls and we're deepening our hearts. And I'm going through this season in my life where God is doing a work in me and God is pulling all of that up in me. And I get this picture of dredging. And... I'm, I'm thinking it through, and, and man, God is doing something. I'm journaling about it. And I go to Gold's Gym over here. That's how I look like this. Thank you. Um, and normally, like, I'll watch the news. I'm kind of a nerd. I don't, like, like my wife listens to hip-hop when she works out. I listen to, like, either the news or, like, sermon podcasts. I, I'm the biggest nerd in the world. But I'm there, and I happen to be watching what's on the screen in front of me as I'm doing the elliptical machine. And the History Channel has this special on dredging. And I'm sucked in. I mean, I don't really watch the History Channel all that much, but man, this got me. And this might be the most boring one-minute clip that's ever been shown in Calvary Church. But I want you to see this because my response at having seen this was unbelievable. Check this out. This is where it all happened. 
happens. This is the business end of the dredge, the dustpan that actually scoops up the material off the bottom of the river. We inject the water into the sand with this high-pressure water jet. Have you ever taken a water hose and squirted it straight down into the soil? Well, that's essentially what these water jets are doing down on the river bottom. They are fluidizing that sand so that it can be sucked up by the dredge pump. The slurry dumps into a holding tank before being pumped out. When maintenance work happens here, everyone on board holds his breath. This part of the dredge up here is the most dangerous part of the dredge, we think. Uh, if you fall in right here, uh, you don't have a very good chance of getting out without going all the way through the dredge and through the propellers in the back. So we put these safety ropes here. We call them the Jesus ropes. If you fall in the water and you miss that rope, Jesus is the only thing that can save you. We put these Jesus ropes up there because if you fall and you miss the Jesus ropes, he's the only one that's going to save you. You all laughed, and I'm on the treadmill on the elliptical machine, bawling my eyes out. And, like, there's people around me looking, I'm just sweating. I'm a fat man. you got to just give me a break here. Like, this is, like, this is not, not, I'm losing it on the elliptical machine. Because, man, God is dredging stuff up for me. And he says, man, I'm going to be with you in this. And there's times, man, where I feel like I've just, like, dropped through. And I missed the ropes. <laughs> And Jesus is the one that's going to pull me out for your life. And we could probably just end Hezekiah right here, right? For your life, what is it that he is, that God is wanting to dredge up in you? What is some of the stuff, that, that filth, that runoff, the, the, whatever the storm has been that you just went through and there's just kind of this damage that's still left over and God says, Man, I want revival in your life. I want revival in your heart. And I want to do a work in you. And to what degree, to what extent are we open to that? It's kind of, it's kind of scary. Moving on with Hezekiah's life, that not only does revival kind of bring us back to this point and, and make all things like God intended, but revival seeks reliance on God. Everything's going really well for Hezekiah until this guy named Sennacherib. Sennacherib, another great choice for you. It could be a boy name or a girl name, I'm sure. Um, but Sennacherib, he comes up and he says, we're going to make war. And there's kind of this taunting that takes place. It says this, uh, we're 2 Kings 18, verse 13. This reliance on God. Verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he seized them. And then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. He basically sends this message out to Hezekiah and he says, Hey, hey, um, I see that you're destroying all of the cities in all of my kingdom. I know that you're at the second most important city right now, Lachish, and you're giving them a whipping. I've done wrong, whatever it is you need. And so Sennacherib, he says, well, make your tribute higher. Pay me more money. Give me more stuff, right? And so there's this deal. And, and Hezekiah says, okay, I, I will pay that. And then the king of Assyria, he sent, this is verse 17, Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh. If I was going to have another boy, Rabshakeh, that would be the one. He sends his messengers 
from Lachish up to Jerusalem. Hezekiah is in Jerusalem at this point, and they went up, and now there is battle. There's a standoff. Look in verse 19. Rabshakeh, he says to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now, on whom do you rely? This is the message to Hezekiah from the king of Assyria. Whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now, behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt. He's saying, look, if you think Egypt's going to get you out of this, Hezekiah, it's not. He says, you rely, behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And has he said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? What he's doing and what Sennacherib is doing is he's undermining everything. But what takes place, and this word reliance shows up over and over. What is it that you are putting your trust in? Now this battle, this is a real life battle, and this is something that's taking place. Um, Here's one of those extra biblical things that I was talking to you about. This right here is a prism. It's called Sennacherib's prism, also known as Taylor's prism. Taylor's the dude who found it. But I want you to picture, this is a six-sided, it's a hexagon, it's made out of clay. And on this... This is like 2,800 years old, okay? On this, Sennacherib, his people, have written down eight military campaigns in which Sennacherib has been this mighty aggressor. This is propaganda, basically. He's saying, look how great, look with the strength with which I have defeated all of my enemies. One of these battles, the third campaign that is talked about on this prism is Sennacherib writing about what he had done to the people and the city of Lachish. And and this is what he says. This is actual translation from the prism. It says, As for Hezekiah, the Judahite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled, fortified cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by leveling with battering rams, and by bringing up siege engines, and by attacking and storming on foot, by mines, tunnels, and breaches, I besieged and took them. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his holy city. So this shows up and it confirms this history. And he's taunting and he's saying, I have Hezekiah, everyone around him, all of his cities in Judah, I've taken care of, I've destroyed, and now I have you surrounded. You are like a bird in the cage. Hezekiah, just give up. But Hezekiah is strong. Hezekiah says, I'm going to trust in the Lord. Even though Sennacherib's saying, hey, what are you going to say, that you're going to trust in the Lord? And he goes through and he says, look, look at all of these other kingdoms who trusted in their gods and look how I've utterly destroyed them. Hezekiah, what makes your God any different? And so constantly the enemy is trying to undermine our reliance on God, even still today. In 2 Kings 18, we have Rabshakeh again, and this is what he says. It says, he stood and he cried out. Now I want you to picture, a lot of the army has moved up from Lachish, and they have Jerusalem surrounded, and 
they're shouting out. And, and there's a little interplay, and you can read this a little bit on your own. I'm, I'm skipping a lot of stuff, but they're talking first in Aramaic, and then he's talking in, in Judean language, so all the people will understand. This messenger from Sennacherib. And, and Hezekiah's saying, hold on, don't say this so the people will understand. You know like the conversation that you have in the car and you don't want the kids to hear what you're saying? Um, so sometimes we like go to Spanish, our really horrible broken Spanish, and we, we make do. And he's saying, don't speak in Judean. And Rob Shaka says, no, I'm totally doing it and I'm going to yell. And so this is what he says, with a loud voice in Judean, he says, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For he will not be able to deliver you from my hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Saying, hold on. Don't believe Hezekiah. Whatever he's going to do, I want you to make sure that you guys don't do that. Now, this battle in Lachish was a big deal. They're coming from this major victory. In fact, um, there's been some ISIS bombings in the last few years. One of them has uncovered the palace of Sennacherib. One of the things that was found uh, were, were these reliefs that, that were actually on the walls. Uh, Sennacherib built this huge, huge palace for himself. It was called the Palace Without Rival is actually what he named it. And they have all of these reliefs and it talks about all of the military exploits and all the ways that he was super victorious. But there's one room that they found. They found these reliefs that were eight feet tall and they wrapped around going 80 feet around four walls of the room. And so there's these details in these reliefs of the battle against Lachish, Sennacherib. And so you can see some of these. Um, you can see where we have some, some battling rams and some sieges and there's, there's these big arrows and, and stuff going all around. And, and you even have Sennacherib. It says, Sennacherib, the mighty king, the king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment. And so that's him right here. Before the city of Lachish, I give permission for its slaughter. And so that's actually written and inscribed here. Sennacherib puts this up. He wants everybody to know he's powerful. You can see this close-up of it, and you see like all of these little detailed little cones all over the place. Those are supposed to be the helmets of all of his soldiers. He wants this to look big and vast and mighty. And they believe that this room where they found all of these reliefs, this was the waiting room to go see the king. If you're a king from another nation, if you're an ambassador or you're a messenger that's bringing some kind of message, you go and you wait for the king in this room and you see his mighty power and how he took Lachish out. This is intimidation. Uh, you could go to Lachish today. This is what the tell looks like. Um, where that, that yellow square is, this is the siege ramp that they actually made entrance into. We didn't make it on our last trip, but been there and... The, the evidence is there that these all, all of these things took place. So what does Hezekiah do? He's coming against this superpower that's destroying everybody. Revival in our lives, revival with God, it requires commitment. If we're going to be relying on him, we can't give up when it looks like things are going to be going bad. Now something takes place here. Go to 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 14. He gets this message from Hezekiah, or from Sennacherib, and Hezekiah, his response is, God, I need some help. I need to go to you in prayer. And so Hezekiah, in verse 14, chapter 19, 2 Kings, Hezekiah takes the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. He went up to the house of the Lord and he spread 
He spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Now incline your ear. means to bend down your ear, O Lord, and hear. And open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord God, I pray, deliver us from his hands and all the kingdoms of the earth, so that they would know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And so this is his prayer. Not only does he pray this prayer, but he's also being smart about it. And so he is putting some stuff out. Uh, This is a a rough three-dimensional, this is what the town looked like. This is what Jerusalem was like. And there's this spring. It actually still comes up today, the spring of Gihon. And it was just outside the city gates. And so as all of Sennacherib's armies coming and they hear that they might be invaded, uh, Hezekiah decides we need to re-divert the water. Water is so important in Israel. If you control water, you can go for a long, long time. But they actually had to re-encircle the walls. And so the walls are now on the outside of the spring, keeping the spring and the water on the inside. And he actually makes this tunnel. And this is the place where you can see the blue dotted line. The tunnel is going here. This is something called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And for 1,750 feet, he gets guys on one end and guys on the other end. And they have axes, no sonar, no like modern construction equipment, but just axes. And they are going until they actually get to each other. And today you can walk through this tunnel and you can see. This is uh, me just a couple weeks ago um, about to go into the tunnel. Um, And if you go in about 20 feet into there, uh, about 135 years ago, 1880-ish, there was a boy who found this inscription. This is the inscription. And this is what that inscription says. It's inside the tunnel and it gives us some history. It says this, the tunnel, this is the story of the tunnel. While the axes were against each other, while three cubits were left, the voice of a man called to his counterpart. And there was Zada in the rock on the right. And on the day of the tunnel being finished, the stonecutters struck each man towards his counterpart, axe against axe, and flowed water from the source to the pool for 1,200 cubits. It was the height over the, the, the heads of the stone cutters. So they're going and they finally get to this point. And it's kind of fun as you're walking through the tunnel, you get to this point where you can see like they hear the voices of the guys coming from the other way. And there's like this huge turn like, oh, we missed it by a little bit. And then they go and they actually connect. And so he's relying on God. But there's reliance on God. It takes, it takes commitment. And so Hezekiah, he prays this prayer. I don't know about you, but... When I feel attacked, when I feel like everything is surrounding me, I sometimes just want to give up. Have you ever had a time in your life where it just felt like the battle was coming from you and you knew the battle in front of you and it's, it's coming from you from over here and this way and all of a sudden as you're fighting this scenario in your life, whatever that is, you hear that there's another battle. The axe drops somewhere over here and now you've got to go this way. It's like I have three kids, right? Getting them ready in the morning, especially when they were really young, 
It's not easy, right? Like you're getting everybody, like you got the lunches and getting them dressed. And sometimes like trying to dress kids is like putting a sweater on an octopus. And like you're just getting that moment. Like, and you're just running, running, running. We finally all get in the car, bucket up, we're ready to go. We're only five minutes late. And then someone yells from the back of the minivan, Daddy, I got to poop. And it's like, are you kidding me? We were doing so well with all of this. And I think that there are times in my life... Uh, where I feel like I've been surrounded on all sides. Uh, even the, the battle. Once Israel in 1948 declares their independence, the very next day they get hit on all sides. And I've had moments, I've had times in my life where, I, man, this is the issue in front of me. This is what I'm working on right now. All of the troops are here. And then we hear about there's something going on over here. And now I have to redeploy. And I got to, oh, now there's something over here. And there's just a point, And I know some of you are in this place in your life where you think, I've got no more troops. I've got nothing left to send over here. I'm dying. God was faithful. And just to wrap up the story of what happens here, God is faithful. God, God says something and does something unbelievable. There's a promise that's made. This is 2 Kings 19. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He will not come into the city. God is making a promise to Hezekiah. He will not come into the city or shoot an arrow in there. So there won't even be a war. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, the same way he will return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. And I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my, David, my servant David's sake. And then it happened that night that an angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when they came into the camp of the Assyrians, when the morning came... They rose early in the morning. Behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed. He returned home, and he lived at Nineveh. And it came when he went to worship in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharazer, great names by the way, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. He actually, Sennacherib gets killed by his kids, and then they take off and they go over to Turkey. The same way he came in was the same way that he went out. God took care of him. 185,000. Um, there's another historian. His name's Herodotus in the 4th century BC. He says that they were destroyed. It says a whole bunch of field mice actually came in. And when they woke up, there was nothing to protect themselves. They, they, all of their, their shields and all of their arrows. So I'm not sure exactly what Herodotus was up to. But we know that there was a, an attack that was taking place in Lachish. But that attack was never brought into Jerusalem. Now, revival, if we want revival, I believe that revival literally restores life. Hezekiah gets through the battle and this whole ordeal with Sennacherib, and then guess what happens? He gets some more bad news. You'd think that where the story would end would be, and so Hezekiah was faithful to God, never had a problem again, and all was great in the kingdom. But in chapter 20, it says, now in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. He's like 39. He's 40 years old. He's my age at this point. And Isaiah, Isaiah who is a contemporary of, of Hezekiah, the prophet, he comes and he says to him, Thus says the Lord, Hezekiah, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Isaiah's kind of like, shoots from the hip, like just kind of tells it like it is, kind of prophet, right? Like, hey, uh, get your stuff ready, you're going down. 
And so Hezekiah says, he turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I've walked before you in truth. And with a whole heart, I have done this. If you actually go and you look at this, um, God, God says basically to Hezekiah, you're going to go down. Well, the reason being, we actually get this from Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, it says this, Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit that he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and Judah and Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. He started getting prideful. He did not give credit to God in any of this. And God says, I'm going to take you out. And so he prays this prayer. And it says that he wept bitterly. And there's a couple of theologians in some of the commentaries I read. They said this weeping for Hezekiah was not necessarily about his own death, but that God had given him something to do and it was not going to be finished in his lifetime. So God hears his prayers And just like he prayed before, he says, God, would you hear me? God, would you see me? Well, Isaiah comes back and he says, God says this, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears and behold, I will heal you. I want you to know wherever you're at, whatever struggle in your life that you're going through, that we have a God who sees our tears. Um, There's this passage in Psalm 56. Just listen for a second. This is talking about the heart of our God. If you have a time in your life and you're going through it right now where you don't know if God hears you, you feel like your prayers are hitting a ceiling, God doesn't hear you, he doesn't see you. This is what God says through David in Psalm 56. It says, you've taken account of my wanderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I've put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. You have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before the Lord in the light of the living. See, revival for Hezekiah was not just that his life was spared. And God said, I'm going to give you another 15 years. And so Hezekiah, he goes throughout the land and great reforms and continues to go until he, he dies and is one of the greatest kings of all of Judah, in all of Israel. But where I want this to hit for us is that revival for us ultimately comes through a greater king at the cross. In Romans, it says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe that God, in the same way that Hezekiah pulled out all of the uncleanliness and all of the filth out of the temple, that he wants to do the same thing in you and me. That he wants revival. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And this is what I want us to hear today. Um, that God wants to do something amazing in your life. If you look in your bulletins real quick, there is a, a quarter sheet of paper. And on there, I, I believe it's Second Chronicles 29.5. And it's talking about getting rid of this filth and this, this stuff that really needs to be dredged out of our hearts and out of our lives. And it says they carried it out. And, and as part of our response and what we do here, I have a, oops, I have a trash can here. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you maybe for the first couple minutes of, of this set as we're worshiping, is that you would just sit before God with this question. God, what is it in my life, what is it in my heart 
that you want to bring up that's been kind of sitting there, been destroying my, my soul, been destroying my heart? What is it that you want to bring up and take out? And that you would be bold and brave enough to write it. You don't have to put your name on there. But you would do that. And not that this act is cleansing you or is going to make everything right. But that this would be the beginning of God doing something in your life. That this would be the beginning of revival for you. We're going to sing a song. And I I specifically asked Ben and the the team to play this. And I, I want to just go to just a couple of the lyrics. Because... We, we need to see this, that God wants to do something in our lives. And, and here's the first, the first phrase that's going to come up. Thank you for the cross that you have carried. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Next. You took the weight of sin upon your shoulders and sacrificed your life so I could live. I literally have this picture of God coming inside of my heart taking all that doesn't belong there. And he took that and he carried that. Jesus Christ carried that on the cross for our sins. Can we go to the chorus? The chorus says, Now nothing is holding me back from you, Redeemer of my soul. I think when it comes to revival, that we get a little bit nervous that maybe God is actually going to do something really good in me. And as I was thinking (laughs) about this song and this passage and what I'm going to share with all of you, I think the the lyrics that, that really need to be said from my heart is, now nothing is holding me back from you except for me. And so that this would be a, a prayer time for you, that you would do some business with God. Um, for me, I don't need just the quarter sheet. I need like the full sheet, right? <laughs> Man, God wants to do something that God wants to restore, but he wants to bring revival. And so what does that look like for you in your life? And so as we respond, that, that you would take that, that sheet, and at some point, would you just drop it in here? And we're going to get rid of it. And you can also respond. We have the elements that we thank Jesus for his blood and for his body as we remember in communion. That you could give your offerings. And if you need prayer, that God is stirring something up. I'm going to hang out over here. And we have some other people on the prayer points on the side. But that this would be the beginning of God doing revival. The king wants to bring revival in your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you. Thank you for the cross where you've claimed victory over sin. And thank you for your resurrected life where you've claimed victory over death. Death has no power, no hold over us for those who are in Christ Jesus. For all the muck, all the the dirt, all of the messiness that we have in our hearts and our lives. God, would would you remind us of that? Not in a shameful and horrible, awful, this hurts way. But it might. But that that would feel safe to bring that up with you, God. And that we would give ourselves over to you that you would redeem us and that you would revive our lives, bring new life to us. In Jesus' name, amen.